Let's pray together. God, we come to you in need of your word, in need of your grace, in need of your spirit, in need of fellowship with you and fellowship with your people. And so we ask that you would accomplish those things, that you would pour out your grace, that you would give us wisdom through your word, that you would humble us before you as we come and study scripture. God, I pray that you would change our hearts and transform us, grow our love for you. Um, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move and minister to our hearts this morning. I pray that as we think about fear and even suffering, that you would teach us to be people who suffer well and who fear nothing except you. And I thank you so much, Father, for this church, for the opportunity to gather together. We ask that your will would be done, that you would be pleased here this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 43. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got our welcome table in the back there. We would love for you to grab one of those Bibles. You can have it. And before we read the chapter, I am going to read the chapter, which is why we didn't do a scripture reading, because it's kind of a long chapter. But before we read that chapter, let me just remind you briefly of what happened last week. This is like a TV series where we have to be updated every time we get together because a lot's happening. Um, you hopefully remember that Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. They betrayed him. And in spite of uh, that difficult set of circumstances, God raised Joseph up to become a powerful man. Under Pharaoh's authority, Joseph is now responsible for essentially administrating all of the land of Egypt through a severe famine. And it's his responsibility to make sure that the people of Egypt are fed. And the famine is so bad that it has spread north and east up into the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family is living. And so as a result, Joseph's father, Jacob, who's the patriarch of this family, um, requested that his sons revisit the land of Egypt in order to buy more food. And so he, uh, I'm sorry, not revisit, but go down to Egypt. They went down to Egypt, 10 of the brothers. And while they were down there, Joseph recognized his brothers and put them through a little bit of a test where he took captive one of his brothers, Simeon, and sent the other brothers home saying that they wouldn't get any more grain and their brother wouldn't be released until they returned with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And that's kind of where we pick up today. The brothers returned back home to their father, Jacob, leaving Simeon in captivity in Egypt. And now we're going to see that as the food runs out, Jacob is going to request that his sons go back to Egypt. So let's pick up in chapter 43, verse 1. And I realize this is long. Read along with me. We're going to tackle the whole chapter. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man, that's Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, which is another name for Jacob, said, 
Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would, have, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by by himself, And them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So last week, when Joseph first encountered his brothers, the scene was quite intense. Maybe you remember... But as readers of this text, we already know, or we already knew at that point, that even though uh, Joseph was going to be reconciled with his brothers, that he had been through a process of reconciliation in his own heart. They had treated him poorly, but in time, he had come to name his sons, essentially the words forget and fruitful. A kind of healing had gone on in Joseph's life. We know that as readers, but from the perspective of his brothers, they are ignorant of these things. As far as they know, they're going back to Egypt, moving towards a great catastrophe. They have no idea how this man will respond to the fact that they've returned with extra money that they left with last time. And so they see this as a potentially dangerous position to be in. Verse 18, if you look, they think that they are about to even be made into slaves. But by the end of the chapter, what we find is the tension has totally dissolved. These brothers sit down to a meal with Joseph, still not knowing who he is. And the beginning of reconciliation is at work. They find themselves by Joseph's steward of the house, cleared of all wrongdoing and dining in Joseph's personal residence like they're some honored guests. After more than 20 years of painful separation, the beginning of reconciliation is occurring. We're going to have to wait for future chapters to see how that theme plays out, reconciliation. In this chapter, what I want to do is I want to point out to you Two processes that are at work that I think we can observe and learn from. These are processes where characters move from what I would call disintegration to integration. They're moving from a kind of sickness to a kind of health. Or maybe you could illustrate it by thinking about, you know, a a room in your house that is disordered and messy and stuff is all over. And then you get to work cleaning it and things go back to their proper place and it is cleaned up and put right. Only the room, of course, is not a room. We're talking about the human soul. And the mess is the dysfunction that is present in our human souls. Okay, so the first process of change, I think, is seen in the character of Jacob here. And it's instructive for us. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 tells us, That whatever was written in former days was written down for our instruction. That's how we should think about the Old Testament. These things have been written for our instruction. And I think that Jacob is probably like a lot of us. So we can glean some instruction from his experience here. If you remember Jacob's life, we went through it quite slowly over a few weeks Jacob has seen God move in his life in some incredible ways. And I am talking about Jacob, the patriarch of this family. He saw God at work 
on his behalf through the struggles of his life in incredible ways. But after experiencing the death of his favorite son, Joseph, suffering and grief drags him down into slavery to fear. Jacob becomes stuck. Unlike earlier in his life, he no longer keeps his eyes on God, who's been his provision and his protection through these difficult seasons that he walked through. Now he's become motivated, I think, only by a desire to avoid further suffering. And as a result, fear then is what dictates his decisions. We saw it quite plainly last week, if you remember the end of chapter 42. But you can see it again here in verse 6. Jacob essentially says to his son Judah, who's pressing him to go back to Egypt, why have you put me at risk of suffering through the loss of another precious son? Now look, fear is a soul killer. Maybe you know that from experience. And if you keep your eyes on the source of your fear, then you are inevitably going to remain paralyzed mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And that's precisely the position that Jacob has found himself in. Afraid to lose another son, that fear has kept him from doing what is necessary. Fixating on the possibility of losing yet another son that has prevented him from even acquiring food for his children and his grandchildren. And yet, because God is so relentless in the love that he has for Jacob, God does not want this man to have fear as his master. God keeps driving him to this place of absolute desperation where there is no other option. God removes all the alternatives leaving no choice but for Jacob to accept his circumstances, press into this fear, embrace the possibility of suffering, and send his sons back to Egypt where he can find some food. And yet even with God moving all of those obstacles, Jacob is still resistant. Look at what Judah says in verse 10. He says, if we had not delayed, we would have returned twice so we see that this is not the first time this conversation has come up. In fact, there was a conversation just like this at the end of chapter 42. I would be willing to bet this isn't even the second time this conversation has come up. If the food has run so scarce as to be urgent. But Jacob's fear and his desire to avoid suffering has ruled even over his desperation to provide food for his children and his grandchildren paralyzing him with inaction. And think about this. Not only is his family running out of food, but his son Simeon has been trapped in captivity for all this time and Jacob has failed to do anything about it. That's how paralyzed he has become. Where is the heroic Jacob of his youth? Where has that man gone? The man who once trusted God through so many difficult circumstances and ended up through those circumstances prevailing because he believed in the goodness of God, because he had faith, where has that man gone? 
Well, he's been devoured by the fear that sprang out of suffering and hardship and grief. And this man is now afraid to experience any further suffering in his life. And so he's stuck. But then we get to verses 11 through 14 and we see that even with his effort to resist, he ends up finally coming to understand that he has no alternative. He begins a little speech in verse 11 by saying, if it must be so, right? Essentially, if it were up to me, it wouldn't go this way, but if it must be so, He sees there's no alternative but to face this fear, embrace the possibility of suffering. And he ends this little speech in verse 14 by saying, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. Now, this is not exactly praiseworthy, optimistic surrender here, but it is surrender nonetheless. And Jacob finally admits he has no alternative. He is forced to to trust God, and he's still mired in unbelief, I think, which is tragic. I don't think he believes that his sons will return, but it's the best of all possible options at this point. And so finally, he surrenders himself over to the mercy of God. You can see that in verse 14. And it's that surrender that finally leads to some action. A small ember of trust that still remains somewhere deep in his heart that allows him to take this step to say to his sons, go. And of course, we come to see quite quickly that Jacob's surrender to God in trust that leads him to act also leads to blessing. Now he doesn't know that quite yet, but we begin to see it unfold right away. We're told in verse 23 by the steward that God has worked behind the scenes for these men to bless them. And see, that's how this whole thing works. Fear threatens to paralyze us. Trust in God moves us forward, ultimately towards blessing. And when in faith we surrender ourselves over to God and we act to move against our fear because we trust God, the end result of that process is ultimately blessing in our lives. We come to trust God more. We come to have greater faith. We come to be more surrendered to his will. And so we can either fear the things of this world and allow them to paralyze us and lead us to inaction, and in that our souls then shrivel up and die, or we can trust God who brings freedom, who brings blessing for our souls. Now look, you might be sitting here thinking, ah, Grady, I don't know, like fear, that's not really my thing. I don't know that this sermon is for me. Like maybe you could hurry it up because, you know, I'm not the person you're talking to today. There's nothing in my life that's causing me to be afraid. And so I can't really relate to Jacob's experience in this moment. And maybe that's true. Maybe you literally have nothing to fear. If so, then rejoice in that. And why don't you give yourself over to praying for others in our church who maybe do have some things to fear, suffering that they're walking through. But I bet if you were to think about it for a couple of minutes, 
you might realize that actually fear is a factor in your life, even if it looks different than Jacob's. Maybe you're the kind of person who fears the uncertainty about the future of life, the future of your work, your job, your income, the future of the world, the economy, or your children in some of the decisions that they're currently making. Maybe you're the kind of person who struggles with the fear of man. You're often caught up thinking, what will this person think about me? How does this person view me? If I make this decision, how will others respond? And that leads to then weakness in your relationships, insecurity in your relationships. You're the kind of person who's easily manipulated because you're overly concerned about what other people think of you. The fear of man can often look like the need to please people around you because you're afraid that if you don't do what they expect of you, that they'll leave you, abandon you as a result. Or maybe you struggle with the fear of not being in control of your circumstances. And I don't know if you realize this, but feeling out of control can actually twist you into the kind of person who becomes overbearing and controlling. You try to force your will onto the small things that you can control, like maybe your children or your spouse. Outwardly, this might look nothing like fear, but the need to control can be driven by fear. Or maybe you're afraid of intimacy. You're afraid that if you were to be honest about who you are and open up to talk about your past or what you think or what you feel, that people that are around you and near you wouldn't want to actually have a relationship with you. And so you're paralyzed from taking relational risks to develop deep, meaningful friendships with other people. You hide. You keep things to yourself because fear leads you to believe that to risk your heart with people will lead to devastation. I mean, these are just some examples. There's lots of fears that grip our hearts. Some people are fearful of failure. Other people are fearful of success. Some people are afraid of being stretched and experiencing discomfort. Maybe the greatest of all fears is the fear that we have, the fear of pain, the fear of suffering, the fear of hardship. And so we try to avoid pain and suffering. That probably lies at the heart of many people's fears. Lots of our inactions in life are driven by the fear of suffering that might come as a result of something that we do. For Jacob, Jacob did not want to suffer more loss. And let me remind you that in Jacob's case, his fear was actually totally legitimate. From a human perspective, Jacob was quite reasonable to be afraid of the fact that if he sent his sons to Egypt, they might never come back. As far as he knew, it was possible they could go and never return. And I want you to understand that's the case with many of our fears as well. The sense that we're justified in having them, in thinking that way, in feeling that way. From our perspective, the fears that we have appear justified. But friends, 
Our perspective is precisely the problem. Don't you see? Jacob is fearful because he has taken his eyes off of this God who has been with him every step of the way to bless him and provide for him and care for him. And instead he has looked at his circumstances. And as a result, the shadow of fear has grown overwhelming. And if he were to set his heart and his mind once again on this God, Yahweh, who has provided not only for him, but for his father and his grandfather before him, then by looking at God, his fear would be conquered. He would remember that he's in good hands under this God. He might remember all of the things that God had prior, previously done in his life. He would look to the power and the mercy of this God who provides And he would no longer be a slave to fear, fear of suffering. He would remember that he's in good hands under God's loving care. He wouldn't cave to this fear. If God is for him, then what could possibly prevail against him? And you know, the Bible talks a lot about fear, actually. And I think that's because God knows just how easily we give in to fear. We're taught in places like 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that God's perfect love casts out fear. Or Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, that declares, God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or Jesus, who declares in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's one of the things Jesus says to the church. Or Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 where Jesus says, Fear not for I am the first and the last. I know the beginning from the end. All of these things are before me and mine to steer. There are dozens of other verses and passages just like this that address the worry and anxiety and fear that we might feel in our hearts in light of who God is. And that's the secret right there. The Bible's singular life hack for dealing with fear, you ready for it? It's quite simple. Learn to trust this God. Learn to trust this God. And I mean, Jacob is paralyzed by fear because he's stopped keeping his eyes on God who is worthy of his trust. He's let another shadow creep into his life to menace him. The shadow of fear, the shadow of suffering that now looms over him that he might lose yet another son. That shadow that keeps him from looking to God. Um, I saw this cute video online recently. Uh, Maybe you've seen it. Um, It's a short little clip, but it's a video of a little girl. She's a toddler. She I'm not very good at this thing. She might be 14 months old. Uh, She can walk, but not very well. And in the video, she's outside in this bright, sunny day. And she's walking, it looks like maybe kind of in a parking lot. And she looks down and suddenly she sees her shadow. And immediately she becomes terrified. This dark, menacing shape that twists 
and turns with her. Every time she moves, it's there moving with her, following her. And in fear, she screams and she turns to run to get away from it. And she looks back only to find that it's there running behind her, following her. And she trips and she falls and she begins to cry. And she looks up and sees still the shadow there menacing her. And at that point, the video ends. But as I was watching it, do you know what I noticed in the very kind of top left corner of the video? I noticed the shadow of a big overhanging roof. And you see, if that girl had run just 10 feet further to get under that bigger shadow, what would have happened to that menacing shape that was chasing her? The darkness that was following her, causing her all this fear and this worry, it would have been immediately swallowed up in a greater shadow that came over her. And this is what we need to learn, I think, as believers, to take the shadows of that fear and that suffering that menace us in life and bring them under the greater shadow of God's love for us. Psalm 36 verse 7 declares, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Or Psalm 57 verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And see, the things that we fear, the things that bring us anxiety, the things that we worry about, they are tiny, tiny things compared to God. But we let them cast this long shadow over our lives so that they appear impossible to overcome, so that they do indeed menace us. And the remedy to that problem is to draw close to God to hide ourselves under the shadow of his love, where he banishes the fear in the cover of his mercy. And when the menacing shadow of suffering stalks into our lives like it often does, and the darkness is threatening to paralyze us into inaction, we cannot give up. We cannot become idle in response to that. We cannot fall down and remain still no, we need to act. And how do we act? We act in faith and we trust and we run deep into the shadow of God's love. And if we can't run, then we crawl. And if we can't crawl, then we ask a brother or sister in Christ to carry us back under that shadow. You know, for Jacob, it's only when in verse 14 he surrenders himself over to the mercy of God that things finally start to get better and the opportunity for blessing comes. And we'll see how that blessing plays out in the weeks to come, but here's my point. To endure the suffering that this life inevitably brings to us, to live a life without being afraid, to in the end receive the blessing that God longs to give to his children, then fear God alone. Trust God. Trust his goodness. Throw yourself upon his mercy. Hide yourself in the shadow of his love. Under the cross, 
Under the cross, don't you see our suffering turns to glory? Our fear is transformed into comfort. Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But I said there were two processes that I wanted to look at in this chapter. That's the first one. Let's briefly consider the second one as we kind of move to close. We see it in the process that Joseph's brothers go through. We already know from last week that these men suffer from a guilty conscience for what they did to their brother. They sold him into slavery after all. You'd have to be a pretty cold-hearted, cruel person to sell your own flesh and blood into slavery. And they suffer with a guilty conscience. That was back in chapter 42, verses 21 to 22. Here in chapter 43, in verse 18, we see these men are also afraid of what now threatens them, that as a result, they might themselves become slaves. The past that where they engaged in actions that have condemned them is now coming back to haunt them. And they arrive at Joseph's house, and in verse 20, we see that they're fully prepared to explain away the events of the past. They've come ready with an excuse in order to alleviate their guilt. But in one fell swoop, all of the evil of the past is absolved when the steward replies in verse 23. He says to them, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God has done this work. And if you understand what I'm getting at, I'm, I'm pointing to the fact that the guilt that these brothers have suffered under is now relieved by the grace that Joseph offers to them. And that act of grace on Joseph's part, as represented by the steward of his house, to no longer count their sin against them, to no longer hold a grudge towards them for the fact that they betrayed him, that grace opens the door to reconciliation. And again, we're going to see how that plays out in detail in the weeks to come. But our Christian faith teaches us that our guilt before God is great because of our sin. You and I stand condemned before God because of our sin. But God has poured out his grace upon us through the work of Jesus Christ in order to liberate us from the guilt of sin. And in that great act of grace, God makes possible for us to be reconciled to God. God makes possible by grace the reconciliation between man and God. Turn with me to Romans 5. And I do encourage you to turn there or at least look with your phone if that's how you're reading this. Because this is a beautiful passage that I want you to be well aware of. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The guilt of our sin drove us away from God. It made us enemies of God. But God pours out his grace upon us through the blood of his Son, making his Son Jesus to suffer in our place the penalty that we deserved. And in that act of grace, God then exchanges our sin, our enmity for love, reconciliation, peace. A conscience no longer ruled by guilt and fear, we receive reconciliation with God our maker and the great lover of our souls. This is the gospel process that we proclaim to the world, that I proclaim to you, that I pray that you believe, that is foreshadowed in the life of Joseph. Guilt vanquished by grace, grace that leads to peace and reconciliation. We're going to take communion now together as a church. The way that we're going to do that is our music team is going to come forward. And as they play this next song, our ushers are going to pass through the rows and offer you uh, the juice and the cracker. And if you're a Christian, then we invite you to participate with us. Uh, grab the cracker, grab the juice. Just hold on to them through this next song. And when the song is over, I'll come back up and lead us through communion together. If you're not a Christian, we are super glad that you are here with us this morning. We're, we're honored to have you join us. But I do want you to understand, this is for those of us who call Jesus Lord. And if that's not you, then just let the communion elements pass. Except I'll give you an opportunity to call Jesus Lord right now if you would like to turn in faith and repentance and give your life to Jesus and surrender to him. And receive this grace and the forgiveness of guilt and sins. No longer being an enemy of God, but now being a loved child of God. You could do that. That's something that takes place in your heart. The Holy Spirit can lead you through that. And if that's you, then not only do I invite you to take the communion elements, but after the service, I would love to chat further with you about that. But for those of us who are Christians, as you take the cup and the bread... This is an opportunity for you, once again, to run under the shadow of God's goodness and his mercy.
to be reminded that guilt has been overcome by grace. And as a result, you have peace with God through the body and blood of Christ. 